Welcome to Jury Duty. I'm your host, Carrie Antholis. This fifth season of our podcast is a special deep dive into a case that we covered as it was happening, the trial of Robert Durst for the murder of his good friend and confidant, Susan Berman. In Jury Duty, the Robert Durst prosecutor speaks. We present a series of exclusive interviews with LA Deputy District Attorney John Lewin, the lead prosecutor in that trial. John will take us through his journey from the very beginning of his involvement with the case, through the trial, and through the death of Robert Durst on January 10, 2022. In our last installment, Lewin took us through his team's strategy in securing conditional witness examinations from certain witnesses before the trial began, and specifically discussed examinations of Durst friend Nick Chavin, medical school dean Albert Cooperman, and NYPD detective Michael Strzok. In this episode, he continues his look at the examination of Chavin and reviews the significance of the conditional witness examinations of Miriam Barnes, Linda Obst, and Emily and Stuart Altman. Lewin also offers his thoughts on the idea of prosecuting witnesses who testify untruthfully for perjury. That's all coming up right after the break. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. A few quick program notes. Because the interviews were conducted by phone, the quality is often not optimal. If there are moments when the audio is unclear, I will try to repeat what was said. Also, in the event that you would like to revisit parts of the trial that John Lewin is talking about, I will periodically identify episodes from Jury Duty that cover sections of the case that Lewin references. You can find our in-depth coverage of the significant events that Lewin covers in this episode in the following installments of the Jury Duty podcast. Durst friend Nick Chavin's testimony is covered in Season 2, Episode 13. The examinations of Susan Berman friends Miriam Barnes and Linda Obst are covered in Season 2, Episode 7, and the questioning of Durst attorney Stuart Altman and his wife Emily can be found in Season 2, Episode 8. Lastly, if you want to listen to these episodes early and ad-free, head over to our Jury Duty Crime Story Patreon page. And now, here is more of my conversation with John Lewin. Was there anything in Nick Haven's exam? Was there anything that he said or the way that he presented himself or the defense strategy in cross-examining him that surprised you? I was absolutely shocked by the cross-examination of Nick Chavin. They tried to make him out to be a liar, but they didn't see and they kept emphasizing, now you said here that Bob never told you anything. And Nick would say, yes. I was not being truthful. I didn't want to say what I knew. I was conflicted. And they literally seemed to think that if they could show that Nick had denied having any information, that that would help them. And it was clear to anybody listening that that just made Nick appear to have no bias at all, meaning he was trying to protect his friend. When you have a witness, and you want to prove that they're a liar, 
what you want to do is, is you want to be able to, A, show they have motive to be a liar, and B, show that they're testifying consistently with being a liar. The problem with Nick is that it became very clear that their cross-examination did show that Nick was lying, but it showed he was lying when he was saying he didn't have any information. And I just thought that the witnesses destroyed the defense lawyers on cross. Nick Chabin destroyed DeGarren. Linda Obst destroyed. Miriam Barnes destroyed. I mean, every witness that we had, there wasn't one witness that I can think of in the case, not one, where their cross-examination, forgetting about making things better for them, there's not one witness where I could tell you that their cross-examination didn't make things worse. That was conditional examination witnesses, and that was witnesses at trial. You know, uh, Ruth Mayer, you know, Lorraine Newman, witnesses that testified live at trial. Their testimony was devastating on direct, and then they got up there, and I mean, I remember Ruth Mayer just destroyed them. And Chesnoff kept arguing with her, and she kept making it worse and worse. Lorraine Newman, the same thing. So, yeah, I was shocked at where they went. Was there anything else memorable from Miriam Barnes or Linda Obst? Well, so Miriam Barnes, Chip did something that could have been effective, but he chose the wrong witness. Chip started off, I still remember, Chip started off basically saying, it was very very creative, you know, do you know how many words you, Mr. Lewin, spoke during your interview with him? I don't know. Would it surprise you was, you know, 5,212. Uh, no. Do you know how many words you spoke? I don't know. Would it surprise you if it was, you know, 411? And the idea of where he was going was that, in essence, I had implanted the information to the witness. So, in other words, it wasn't coming from her. It was coming from me. Now, the problem with that is that it was documented that everything she said during my interview with her, she had already said to non-police officers documented years before I ever met her. So in other words, if you're going to argue that, hey, this is the prosecutor and he's implanting this statement, you need to make sure the witness didn't give the statement years before she ever met the prosecutor. That's what I remember about Miriam, other than the substance was extremely damning. The cross-examination was tried to make it sound like it was coming from me. And by the way, that was well anticipated and was something that I wanted. Because of the active role that I take in these cases with interviewing witnesses, I am used to having lawyers trying to make me the bad guy. They've been doing it for 20 years. It has not worked yet in one trial I've ever had. So... One of the things that I try to explain when you're talking about trial strategy, et cetera, it's not just about winning the battle. It's about picking what the battle is going to be and encouraging and manipulating the other side to have this battle. So I wanted them to make the case about me because I believed that if they did that, it wasn't going to work. And they took the bait, and that's where they went. I knew they were going to take the bait, because in the first trial, 
the bad guy was Janine Pirro. In this case, the bad guy was going to be a combination of Andrew Jarecki and myself, but when they stipulated to all of Jarecki's stuff, they were left with me. Right. In the Miriam Barnes testimony, were you at all troubled by her misremembering the wedding date and conflating that with the time period that Susan made the statement to her? Not even slightly. I will always ask this. She was a beat witness. Lewin here references his co-counsel, Deputy DA Habib Balian, as a prosecutor responsible for questioning Miriam Barnes. But I had, you know, this comes up with every witness. I will say to them, so listen, are you more sure, do you have a better memory of what the witness told you than when it was they said it to you? Or do you have a better memory of what you saw? Or do you have a better, better memory of the day you saw it? And obviously, what happens every time is people will say, well, no, I have a much better memory of what she said. I have a much better memory of that shooting I saw. I don't have as good a memory of the date. So those kinds of nitpicky bullshit never work, in my opinion. And the reason they don't work, Carrie, is because all of us understand, do you find that to be effective? So in other words, can, is it easy for you to understand why she might be wrong on the date of the wedding versus Susan telling her this important information? You tell me. Again, the Miriam Barnes examination appears in Season 2, Episode 7 of this podcast. Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to Amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's Amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. We continue my conversation with John Lewin as he offers his thoughts on the questioning of Durst attorney Stuart Altman and his wife, Emily. Our in depth coverage of these testimonies can be found in season two, episode eight of this podcast. Let's talk Emily Altman. Tell me about the process of getting her in for the conditional witness examination and then doing it, the drama of Emily Altman on the stand. Well, Emily Altman and Stuart Altman were very important witnesses. So I knew Bob very well. I did not think that Bob had confessed deliberately to anybody in the case other than Nick Chavin. And I think that the reason that he ended up confessing to Nick Chavin was because he felt very bad about having to kill Susan, their mutual friend. And it was important to him that Nick understand why. And so when Bob told Nick it was her or me, that's absolutely truthful uh, Bob is telling the truth, in my opinion, about that. That's what he believed. It's not only truthful about what he believed, it's actually truthful and accurate. Now, the problem for Bob is that when Bob killed Susan, 
Bob didn't realize at the time that Susan had already told the story to, to all these other people. So he killed her 20 years too late. Do you think that's true, John, based on what Bob said on the stand? Or do you think he had heard other people say that Susan's out there telling people that she gave you an alibi? No, that was a complete lie on the stand. That never happened. He never I mean, think about it for think about it for a second. Do you really think that if Susan is out there telling people that Bob killed Kathy, telling a bunch of people that he's going to be giving her money? And and by the way, and and let's assume that so there's two ways to look at that statement. This is why this case gets because you, you kind of get you know you turn yourself in knots. <laughs> we know that that's a lie. And the premise behind that is a lie, because the premise behind that is Bob didn't kill Susan. So let's look at it two ways. Let's assume Bob did kill Susan, which we know he did, okay? And let's assume that Bob is responsible for killed Kathy, which we know he did. So if Susan was out there saying that stuff, Bob knows that's a giant threat to him, and he would have killed her years earlier. So as soon as he would have heard it, Susan would have been gone. Let's go the other way, and let's assume, as Bob tried to argue during his testimony, that Susan is lying. She's making this up. So forget about why would she make it up about her best friend. Bob could never explain that because it makes no sense. But let's assume it's true somehow. She's making it up, telling everybody that Bob killed his wife. If that were true, why would Bob continue to be friends with her and give her money? Right. right. Makes no sense. Right. So so this is an example, and this goes back to why it was so important to me to hit Bob up with open-ended questions during cross. Because I was very confident that, one, I knew the case and even Bob's prior statements much better than he did. The problem for Bob during cross-examination was not just that he could not explain his lies. That was a huge problem. If he knew every lie that he had, there was no way to explain them. I had him. He had an even bigger problem was he didn't even remember the lies he had told. So when Bob is up there, Bob's kind of his M.O. is – when he ends up getting confronted, he just starts telling more lies. And the lies that he's telling, spur of the moment, are generally not good lies. That's how you get Barry Weiner and Danny Cunningham and pick your, you know, staycations, etc. He just ends up coming up with terrible bullshit. So um, <laughs> the, the architect in San Francisco and the house that he was going to live in with Susan. Can you imagine, by the way? Susan, who is incredibly high maintenance, okay, that Bob is going to choose to have her living downstairs. Bob is like the most egocentric, impatient, selfish human being on the planet. And he's going to have Susan Berman living, you know, a floor away from him. I mean, I mean, it's just that. You know, I mean, it, it's, it's hysterical. And Bob has so little self-awareness that he doesn't even understand how bad his lie is. All right, let's go back to Emily Altman. So take me through Emily and then Stuart. Okay, okay so Emily, 
I knew that Bob had not confessed to anybody other than Nick. But I also believed that Bob had made damaging statements to different people who, if they were honest with us, it would help our case. I knew that Emily and Stuart were two of those people. And the way that I knew it was that Bob fought extremely hard. He and his lawyers spent tens of thousands of dollars out of his pocket on lawyers for them trying to prevent them from being able to testify. Emily Altman, we knew that because the defense was putting up so much of a fight that she must have had good stuff. So we eventually prevailed on that. And what started was I had reached out to her and to Stuart and wanted to speak to them from the start. Originally, Stuart had said had said that he was going to invoke attorney-client privilege. And things went back and forth. Originally, his son was his lawyer, and then he had another lawyer. And I informed him that he did not have attorney-client privilege on some of the stuff that I wanted to ask him, which had to do even going back to high school with he and Bob. So originally, their statement was, Stewart's position was, I'm not going to talk to you because of attorney-client privilege, and Emily is not going to talk to you because she doesn't want to talk to you, which is their right. You can't make someone talk to you. So by the time we ended up bringing them out here to testify, all of a sudden, Emily was now claiming attorney-client privilege. She had never claimed that before. We knew that was complete bullshit, and one thing that was very helpful was that the law in Louisiana, basically, you are able, as an attorney, you can talk to the jail there, give them the attorney's number, and those calls are not even monitored, all right? Conversely, if you speak to somebody on a regular line, even if it is your attorney in Louisiana, you are told that those calls are monitored. So you are waiving attorney-client privilege because you're being told this call is being recorded. So they did not in any way designate Stewart as an attorney. In fact, they didn't designate any of themselves as lawyers. I told them months later, hey, by the way, if you don't want your calls recorded to lawyers, we wouldn't listen to them anyway if we back up. Under Louisiana law, had we wanted to, we very likely would have been able to have listened to the calls involving Bob and his lawyers. If those were in California, we wouldn't have been able to. We decided to not even go there. It just wasn't worth it. So we did not listen to any calls involving Bob and his lawyers. Our position was we treated Stewart as a lawyer in Louisiana. The problem was the calls to Emily Emily was not his lawyer, and we were able to listen to all those calls. And because we were able to listen to them, when the defense later tried to say that those calls were covered by attorney-client privilege, we had already listened to them. We were able to litigate it with the judge, and none of them involved anything relating to attorney-client at all. The calls themselves were clearly personal. She was a friend, etc. So we knew that likely there was good information. 
I did not know specifically what Emily was going to testify to. And they did everything they could to delay health issues and we can't come out here. And I wanted to do Emily first. And so we finally ended up getting Emily out here. And my hope from the start was that, you know, I don't think that Emily will actually perjure herself. If she ends up getting on the stand, she's going to reluctantly say what she knows. I was wrong. She got on the stand, and she denied knowing anything. She denied, I know nothing, I've never, Bob's never told me anything, blah, 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 blah. And it was very clear in her demeanor that she was deliberately hostile and trying to not provide any information. I had a big advantage in that I knew that Emily had spoken to both Charlie Bagley and to Jarecki and Smirling. Now, I knew that Emily had never gone on camera with Jarecki and Smirling, and they had not provided me any transcripts or video because there wasn't any transcript or video, so I didn't know what Emily had said. They had never told me what Emily had said because it was protected by their shield as journalists. So I didn't know what Emily had specifically said to them, and I knew some of what she had said to Bagley based on what he had printed, but I didn't know what he had said to her either. I had a whole very organized area across for her. And eventually what happened, and I'm going by memory here, is that I ended up asking her, isn't it true that you told Charlie Bagley that Bob had told you where he was at the time of Susan's murder. Because I ended up coming to the conclusion that very likely what Emily had, it turned out to be right, was that Bob had made damaging admissions about where he was at the time of Susan's murder. It wasn't going to be a confession, but it was going to be, I was in Los Angeles when he's always denied that. So I, I say to Emily, and I say cross, it wasn't really cross, it was direct, but I was able to designate her as a hostile witness. Isn't it true that you told Charlie Bagley that Bob told you where he was at the time of Susan's murder? No. Isn't it true that you told Andrew Jarecki that Bob told you where he was at the time of Susan's murder? And her response was, I don't know or I don't remember. I knew it was the most exciting moment of this entire litigation. I knew right at that moment that Bob had told her that because what her answer should have been was no, or if she expanded on it, how could I tell Andrew Jarecki something Bob told me that he never said? And instead her answer was, I don't know or I don't remember, which said to me that what she didn't know or didn't remember was not whether Bob had told her that, but whether she had repeated it to Jarecki or not. I got that little in, and then we were able to blow her open, and she ends up making the just damning admission that Bob told her that he was at the Beverly Hilton uh, at the time that Susan was murdered. And that was huge. And the defense, I'll never forget, they were they looked like they were going to pass out. Dick literally said that was damaging information, said this in court, something to the effect of that, yeah, that was damaging information, conceded that. Dick would never concede that anything had hurt him, and he was, he looked like he needed a standing eight count. He looked like he was going to pass out. 
that was actually the key moment in the entire proceedings on this case. Expand on that a bit, John. That statement by Emily that Bob had told her this caused DeGarren on cross-examination to lead her with the following question. Isn't it true that it wasn't Bob Durst who told you that, that it was your husband, his lawyer? Okay. Apparently, DeGarren thought that if he could get Emily to say that she had heard it not from Bob but from Stewart, that somehow that would mean that her prior statement that Bob had said it wouldn't come in. It's absurd because nobody believed it for a second, including the judge who commented on it at a later point in time, that in essence Emily was up there perjuring herself. So Emily, in essence, lied from a leading question from Dick DeGarren. You can form your own, you know, conclusions there. This was not like a surprise thing that Emily said. Emily was led into the question by the lawyer. Emily now is saying, on one hand, Bob told me this, and on the other hand, no, I probably heard it from Stewart. That then allowed me to cross-examine Stewart on it. Now, the judge had ruled one of the few times that I didn't agree with the ruling. I understand he was in a tough position. The judge had ruled that I was not allowed to ask Stewart whether Bob had told him that. And our position was that the defense intentionally and knowingly waived attorney-client privilege by asking the question in the first place to Emily. So now the door's open. However, Stewart ended up saying on his own, I didn't tell Emily that, and Bob never told me that. So basically, Stewart and Emily were telling different stories. The end result of that, when also combined with some of Stewart's other testimony, because we were able to get in some of Stewart's calls from New Orleans, one of the calls with Bob, Bob had said that, quote, he was not ready to take a position on where he was at the time Susan was murdered. That was incredibly damning. And based on that information, that is what caused the defense to ultimately decide that they could not anymore argue that Bob had not been in Los Angeles. Now they had to admit, okay, Bob was there. He found the body. He wrote the cadaver note. That was the domino that set everything up. Emily's testimony is what led to the stipulation that Bob wrote the cadaver note, that Bob found the body, etc. And that's what we wanted. Is there any reason, John, that the several witnesses who clearly told untruths, who gave untruthful testimony, that you haven't looked at prosecuting any of them for perjury? Well, number one, it is incredibly rare. I'm aware in my career of one case where someone was prosecuted for perjury based on testimony they've given. Generally, when you have perjury, it's we have perjury cases where you lied on a written record, you signed something under penalty of perjury. I'm aware of one case where we've actually put someone on the stand. I'm sorry, we've actually prosecuted them for perjury based on testimony they gave. It's very difficult to prove were they actually committing perjury, how material is it, and in the end, 
this is not worth the effort. The target was not Emily Altman or Susan Giordano or Stuart Altman or Doug Oliver. The target was Bob Durst. It wouldn't have been worth the resources to be prosecuting these people for perjury. That concludes this episode of Jury Duty, the Robert Durst Prosecutor Speaks. Join us in our next installment as John Lewin takes us through the conditional witness examinations of apartment building manager Karen Minatello, Durst assault victim Peter Schwartz, and several of the witnesses to whom Susan Berman acknowledged providing Robert Durst with an alibi for the murder of his wife, Kathy. And if you want to listen to these episodes early and ad-free, head over to our Jury Duty Crime Story Patreon page. Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. You can find more information about this trial at crimestory.com. Jury Duty is created, hosted, and produced by yours truly, Carrie Antholis. The episode was co-produced, written, and edited by Chris Taracon. Music for this episode was provided by Strike Audio. Thank you for joining us, and we hope you will come back for the next episode of Jury Duty, The Robert Durst Prosecutor Speaks. <laughs>